0: Heroin, meth, just anything. That's where addiction takes us, brother.
1: Jimmy, Jimmy, this is really brave of you to bring us to group.
2: Jimmy, do you think you could let the group know what it is about the group today that's allowed you to share this?
0: The other day, um, Gemma, she got vulnerable, like, real vulnerable, like, I just felt closer to her, really close.
2: I'm wondering if you answered my question there.
1: What was it, do you think, about this group that let you share that? I
0: don't know, really. Maybe it's the trust. Like, I sort of trust them. You no, know, no, now you all know the real me. Jimmy, it sounds like you've been holding this in for quite a a while. Um, What were you worried about? What were you frightened about if you told the group about this? What was I afraid of? Who's going to respect someone like me? Who's going to respect someone that steals medication off their mum?
1: It hasn't changed the way I feel about it, Jimmy. That took a lot of guts. Yeah, you've done really well.
0: What you've
3: just done. I could never do that. It's really brave.
1: Just remember, it wasn't you,
4: Jimmy, as the addict. Jimmy. Jimmy, I just I just think it was great that you managed to get it out there. During this process Jimmy is clearly sitting in a lot of discomfort and when he finally speaks the rest of the group appear to detect this and give rapt attention. It's clear something different is going on now. Disclosures such as Jimmy's can be fairly common in addiction support groups when there's enough cohesiveness in the group and readiness in the individual to disclose. They can be very powerful agents of change for a number of reasons but should never be forced. Some clients get the message from certain treatment philosophies that you're only as sick as your secrets or that unless you expose your shame it it will eat you up and sabotage your recovery. There's actually no evidence to support either of these views. However, if and when people are ready to disclose shameful aspects of themselves it gives a clear message of trust which almost always brings the group members closer together by giving others permission to take risks and make further disclosures themselves. There are a number of benefits for the group and for the individual in this. As other group members identify with Jimmy, they also are taking risks and exposing their vulnerability, entering into the circle of trust with him. However, Jimmy seems too wrapped up in his remorse to receive the gifts offered to him at first. But the communication clearly takes the group to a much deeper and more involved level of interaction than previously. Even Mark shows some interpersonal sensitivity with his identification, Rather than focusing historically or on the content of the disclosure, as Nathan does, JAX takes the opportunity to stimulate the second stage of interpersonal learning, in the here and now. After the first stage, a genuine, emotionally-laden interpersonal experience has occurred, the therapist has the opportunity to help the group illuminate the process. In this case, JAX invites what we might call a meta-disclosure a disclosure about the disclosure, pointing the group into the here and now, inviting them to explore what the event said about the relationships between the people in the group. By asking what allowed him to share his story Jimmy's able to highlight how another member of the group has affected him and how he feels towards them as a result. Jacks probes further and Jimmy's able to highlight how he's developed trust with the members of the group this will have a tangible effect on the relationships with the other members and on the group as a whole. But by saying it, now you all know the real me, Jimmy betrays continued feelings of shame so Tim offers another classic intervention designed to elicit further meta-disclosure by asking what he was afraid would happen if he shared this. Jimmy is then able to identify the root of his shame in the group, that people would reject him and disrespect him This reveals an even deeper level of intimacy as he shares his fears. However, the fear catastrophe doesn't occur. People are quite clear that, on the contrary, rather than looking down on him for his past actions, they admire and respect his current honesty and courage. When someone realises that they are not judged by others about historical actions for which they judge themselves, it can be a great help to that person to give up their self-judgement and put those events in the past.
5: All right. So just to take a few minutes, this this is one of those examples of kind of a process type group where where what you're trying to do is process the what what the individuals bring to the group to then elicit some type of growth and development within them. And if you you've noticed that um, it started with the emotional expression, right? This he he had to feel disclosed, and I want to go back. Well, hold on.
3: Your everyday essentials delivered
5: fast. Good. Hold on. Wonder makes us turn curiosity. All right. Sorry about that. Um, so, you, the emotional experience expression, if we go back to, uh, you remember when we were talking about humanistic, existential, um, Um, and and one other uh, uh, individual we were talking about when we were talking about theories, you'll remember that uh, it, it was all about the relationship between therapists and clients. And in this case, it's about the relationship not only between the individuals in the room and the facilitators or therapists, It's about building that relationship with everybody in that group setting. So in this type of therapy, and when we're starting to talk about group treatment, and we're trying to apply some of the theories we learned, uh, for this type of, of treatment to work, you really have to work on developing not only your relationship with the client, but also building the trust between the client members. And then... Usually in these situations, uh, individuals bring up past events. In this example, it was about stealing medications from mom, and mom's now passed away, and that's sort of kind of that guilt of what th- that probably put her through, which probably drives some addiction at this moment for this young man, right? And so, but what we have learned over the years of of, of from psychoanalysis, where you Bring someone back into their infancy, and then you go through all their trauma, all their life events, and then you come up with this theory of, "Well, this is why you ended up the way you are." Quote unquote. Uh, what we have learned is is when it comes to actually prevention of an unwanted behavior like addiction, or the relief of some type of depressive symptom, if we're talking depression or trauma, that really so yes, that exploration of guilt and all of those things is important as a, as a lightning rod, but the job of the, especially the, the group facilitator, the therapist in the situation, is to bring those emotions and those past experiences back to how they translate into behaviors here and now. How are they affecting this individual's recovery in this case? and then bringing it back. So what does this, in a sense, this trauma you experience, motivate you to do today? Okay. Um, And then there, there always tends to be a little resistance. This is where the the therapist was wondering what the fear is about um, stating why he felt like he could say this here and now today. Um, And then If you notice too, the other skill that the facilitator had to plant into the group is that uh, the therapist had to create that non-judgmental environment with all the group members because what probably is the most therapeutic about this simulation that we just watched is the fact that the, the person took on courage to express something that was deeply bothering them and then they didn't feel that rejection from everyone else. And that's another important component of this type of of, of therapeutic processing. Now, my question for you all is this was a story, this this little video was about um, um, a person's guilt over drug use, all right? But what we're trying to do is make sure that these individuals could slow their use or stop altogether if, if possible, stop that addictive process. I wanna ask the group from your education that you've had here at TOCC so far and your professional experience, how does processing that trauma of, of stealing medication uh, from mom, feeling that guilt today and how that is happening today, how does this process do you think Prevent that young man from using uh, or continuing his addictive behaviors. So I open it to uh, anyone who wants to speak or type in the chat.
3: Um, I, did you say uh, what would make him either not use or use because of this um, yeah.
5: disclosure? Yeah, okay. yeah. Well, how can this process benefit someone from not using?
3: I think that disclosure might make him use again and uh, because i know that for addicts there there are thousands of reasons to do and and they find very few to not do so um i think just by the group giving him positive reinforcement might not be enough
5: absolutely and, and tina that that that's one of the answers that i was exactly looking for Um, is that this was just a get the individual opening and being honest about their addiction right but as you're pointing out this quite isn't enough to say so now that you've pointed out your addictive behavior guilt you're having the next step is we got to put in some skills or some coping mechanisms or some things like that. And so what Tina is bringing up um, is is really important is that process groups like this tend to um, be, as Lauren is saying, honesty is one of the first steps facing addiction, right? But once you have that honesty, uh, what is the next step? What is the skill to develop? And that's where, um, this is where the educational type of groups Uh, start to play, but, well, I'll I'll get to that in a minute, but, so let's watch an example of more of an educational type of addiction group, knowing that what Tina and Lauren put in the, the thing, this, these groups are really good about getting people to be honest, but
0: then what is that next step? Yeah, okay. So let's take a look at this one.
2: This video is designed to tell you more about AWARE support groups and how they work. We understand that reaching out for help can seem like a difficult Is that by watching this video you will be encouraged to give the AWARE support groups a chance. AWARE support groups are facilitated by two voluntary facilitators who have each received extensive training from AWARE. They facilitate the support group so that all attendees have the best chance of benefiting from the meeting. They also make sure that the group follows AWARE's quality standards. At the start of the meeting, the facilitators open the support group and outline the AWARE group rules. These are in place to ensure a safe and respectful setting for everyone. These include AWARE's policy and confidentiality, asking people to be punctual, to be tolerant of other people's views and to give others space to share. We also ask that people not mention medication or doctors by name as what works for one person might not work for someone else. The support groups use a proactive approach to helping people acknowledge their feelings, become aware of their thoughts and to focus on helpful actions they can take. A key element is peer support so that people can learn coping skills from others who understand depression and how it impacts. Everyone introduces themselves by their first name only, and then the facilitator opens a space for sharing.
1: The meeting is now open if anybody would like to share.
2: No one is called on to contribute unless they wish to. Often there will be people in the group who have attended previously, and they may be comfortable to share. I've had a really hard time over the last two weeks. I'm not sleeping well. My mind is racing back over things when I'm in bed at night. And if I do drop off, you know, well, I have the most terrible dreams, you know, really horrible and I can't seem to get them out of my mind. And, you know,
1: I'm really tired all the time, you know, exhausted, really. Thank you for sharing that, Michael. Depression can really impact your sleep and your energy levels. So I'm just wondering if you'd like some feedback from the group this evening, on what you've just shared with
2: us. Getting feedback from others in the group who may have dealt with similar thoughts or feelings and who may have found a helpful way to deal with them can be of benefit.
0: I
1: can understand I had a similar problem last year myself. I found it very difficult to sleep and um, what I found that worked for me was taking regular exercise and watching how I use my mobile phone particularly last thing in the evening. Um, Going for a walk in the evening, Michael, I I found it cleared my head and uh, helped me to unwind and relax and um, Before that, I I used to always check my emails, imagine, before I go to sleep at night and check my um, mobile. And so that only activated my mind and kept me awake at night. So what I've done now is I just turn off the mobile phone and take my regular exercise. So you might maybe consider those two ideas Mm -hmm. and also watching the caffeine intake Mm -hmm. during the day and especially at night. I, I think it's the small things that made a big difference for me.
2: The facilitator will summarize some helpful options that may work for the person.
1: So Michael, Shane and Angela have offered you feedback. Um, Shane was talking about not using electronic equipment late at night, maybe turning off the phone Um, also talking about uh, exercise, increasing exercise. And Angela was talking about doing more relaxation exercises, uh, maybe more breathing exercises and also about the caffeine, not drinking caffeine late in the evening. Do you think you could possibly take one piece of feedback and try it this week and let us know how you get on next week? Would that
0: be okay?
2: No. The facilitator will then ask if anyone else would like to share.
1: Well, I felt great actually this week and over the last few months um, I didn't think I'd be able to say that again.
2: In some cases, people choose to attend the group for some time. This helps them to maintain wellness and also keeps them linked in with the support network.
4: So that's really good news, Martha. So what do you think has actually got you to this stage?
2: Well,
1: I still keep in regular contact with my doctor and that helps. And um, what I find really useful is keeping. I keep a mood diary, which gives me an idea of sometimes what else might be going on if my mood is low. Um, coming to these support groups really helps as well. And I I come every Wednesday evening. Um, What's really important to me actually is just a sense of routine. Um, On a Saturday morning, I go for a walk, um, a really long walk, and I think the exercise is really helping me. Um, And I try to do this every day as well, is just remember three good things that happened that no matter how bad it might seem, rather than focusing on the negative things to look at the okay moments
4: that happen too. It looks like Martha's actually, you've actually used an awful lot of the key skills that we've talked about over the last few weeks and in, actually implemented into your own life. Um, so just wondering, has any of the other group uh, used the... Uh
2: the meeting lasts for 90 minutes and the focus is on this sharing of emotional support and coping tips or skills that may help others in the group. Many people find the support groups to be very helpful At the end of the group, the facilitator suggests that each person might try to take away at least one helpful thing from what has been shared during the meeting. If you are experiencing depression, the AWARE Support Group could be a helpful option for you. You will find details of the locations of these on the AWARE website under the heading Support Groups. If there are none near you, remember that AWARE has other services such as the support line, the support email, and the life skills programs. Details of these
0: are also available.
5: Okay, so <coughs> I didn't realize that one was on depression. Thank you. Okay. Anyways, it's the same concept. If you see the difference between that first one, which was a process group dialectical group, and this group, this one was a little bit more directive. It provided skill development and coping skill development, but it still used the group to to process and come up with those coping skills. So even when we're talking about these more psychoeducational or educational group, the, the skill of the... Therapist or the, the 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 facilitator is to help uh, the the group members understand those coping skills and then apply them and then make and then facilitate that through the rest of the groups. Did every did did everyone kind of see the difference between those two groups before I go on? Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Okay. So what? I'd like to do now is really kind of get into the kind of meats, <laughs> meat and bones of things here. Um,
0: I'm not sure. Okay, so now that we saw
5: what these two groups look like. Let's start to talk about the, the kind of the, the nuts and bolts of re, relapse prevention group. And we will see this continuum from peer process groups to more skill-based groups throughout this. And a lot of times, and, and you all those who have worked in the addiction field, you know that a lot of times uh, uh, people who are suffering from addiction are in multiple types of groups. It might be a formal cognitive behavioral, uh, relapse prevention, they might be in 12 steps, it might be some some other type of group that deals with another co-occurring issue. So it's important to keep in mind that what we're talking about is always on this continuum between having the ability to process and the ability to have a safe space and this area that provides the structure for one, like we look at the 12 steps, it's very structured, to provide that structure and consistency in someone's life. And then the third element uh, of, of treatment should always be this idea that there needs to be some type of skill development, some way to develop coping when you have a craving or in the case of the depression, how can what are some coping strategies I could have in, in that case? So let's start with uh, just some information. We know that these are uh, um, uh, the different types of uh, uh, substance abuse treatment, uh, 12 steps fellowship tends to be uh, one of the go-tos, um, AA, Al-Anon, uh, CODA. And what, all of, what, what a lot of these 12 step uh, groups do is one, it creates that fellowship. Two, there's the person that you're accountable to uh, through your sponsor. But three, it provides a structure. And one of the things that we know that addiction, uh, a lot of people who suffer from addiction have is an inconsistent structure to live by. Um, There's so much into the addictive process that the rest of their world has become kind of broken and chaotic. Um, And a lot of times that's where the addiction grew out of, too, is is coming from an impoverished um uh, uh, broken chaotic environments. So the these programs really try to provide that um, that that uh, real structure, that consistency. And then we do have, you know the inpatient treatments this is we're usually talking about detox, uh, medical supervision, disease models, AA group drug education, these traditional, what they call the Minnesota models of inpatient treatment is the idea is that you get them in, you get them biologically stabilized, you get them into doing group sessions, and then you get them to the point where they can be released to an outpatient type of system. Um, I think the the, the important uh, thing we need to recognize is the different levels of medical supervision and detox that a person needs. Uh, I will tell you in, you know... If we put put it on a continuum, um, uh, you know, alcohol is is a is a drug that is highly dangerous to detox from. Um, in fact, if 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 it can't be if if someone is severely addicted to alcohol and they cannot do it medically, it's really a bad idea for an alcoholic to cold turkey, quote unquote, um, because usually when they detox in a treatment center, they have to have 24-hour supervision. Uh, uh, usually, they, they'll have IVs uh, with them with all different type of medications because seizures are really, really common. Um, and not just seizures, but very dangerous seizures are associated with alcoholism specifically. And then it kind of goes to the levels of different types. So, uh, you know, usually when you're dealing with people who are recovering from... Um, uh, Xanax and stuff like that, You anti-seizure medications and that are also important, but uh, less medical intervention is needed during the detox period. Uh, we also have uh, therapeutic communities for substance abuse. This is um, the, the therapeutic communities that I've worked in before were in the prison center system uh, where they set up special units that were set up to where, uh, basically they were were open units where everyone was living together and everybody had to become responsible for each other. And that's really the model of the therapeutic community is that you want people to start working together in the the, uh, uh, prison system. You want them to stop thinking that uh, calling someone else on something is wrong. Uh, You want them to hold each other accountable and it's a 24 hour residential setting. Some of the issues that that therapeutic communities do have is that uh, depending on the length of stay of the individual is that um, uh, you can get it to where the individual has the inability to function outside of that therapeutic community. Because if you think about what a therapeutic community does is it provides a 24 hour structure to heal in, and to exist in, and it provides consistency, and it becomes more safe in that environment. And then you go back out into the community, and here you are back in the world of chaos. You don't have that 24-hour support from others, other clients in the center, or you don't have that you know, you, consistency between meals, and you have to do all of those things. So that's one of the uh, twists and pulls about therapeutic communities as they do provide a safe place for someone to heal for for someone to learn skills to overcome it but then once they're out of that safe environment it becomes um,
0: somewhat different Uh, and then
5: some of the other types you know we have uh, pharmacological therapies uh, (laughs) I <laughs> vague, not even say it. Uh, <laughs> that some are used on an emergency basis. Some are used more on a long-term basis. Um, there's been arguments, are they just trading one drug for another that's legal? Um, I know that's been a methadone uh, um, uh, argument for a while now. Um, but these drugs are really meant to stabilize the biological system. So that the individual can work on more of what drives their addiction from the psychological perspective, and it's a, uh, it's never a good idea just to put someone on pharmacological therapy without having additional resources for that individual. Um, and then we have the psychological therapies. We have you know group, what we've been talking about, couple, those types, behavioral th- therapies such as aversion therapy, cue exposure, skill training. The the ones that we're really going to be talking about here so and then we have the you know what they always call the gold star is a cognitive behavioral therapy which. um, includes what we will be talking about a lot today and on, on next Monday, which is a relapse prevention coping skills cognitive therapy and lifestyle so those are kind of just an overview of the different contemporary approaches to substance abuse use. So with that in mind,
3: let's talk about um, Brickman's model of helping and coping when it applies to addictive behavior. And if you see
5: on this top area up here, we have, is the person responsible for changing their addictive behavior? And we have thoughts of yes or no, who should be you know, what is, who is responsible for addiction, those types of things. And then on this side, on this axis we have, is a person responsible for development of addictive behavior, okay? And then let's look
3: at, and let's look at the different parts then. So
5: if we think that the person is completely uh, responsible for their addictive behavior, and that they're responsible for the development of that disorder, we have what's called the moral model. And relapse equals a crime or a lack of willpower on the individual. Okay. So if you believe that a person is responsible for, completely responsible for their addiction, and they were completely responsible for the development of that disorder, let me repeat, if the, you think the person is completely responsible for changing their addictive behavior and that the person is responsible for the development of that behavior, this is what we would put in this category as a moral model of, of um, um, addiction. When we think that the person is responsible for changing, they're not responsible for changing their addictive behavior. And we don't think it was the person's responsibility for the development of that uh, disorder. This is what we call the disease model. And I I want to make sure we're thinking of this on a continuum. This is the pure disease model. The disease model that says any type of pathogen, any type of disorder is caused by some heredity or physiological issue. It has nothing to do with uh, the environment and behavior. This is the disease model we're talking about here. Um, And relapse for them, and when we're talking about relapse, it's going back to an original state, right? Um, And I don't know if we really define that really well. So I'm gonna go back relapse. We need to make sure is defined as any previous behavior that you committed or you were a part of that you have tried to stop but then you're going back to it okay so for for in the the disease model relapse is a reactivation of the progressive disease it's kind of like a relapse in addiction would be kind of like what a um resurgence of a cancer would be or or a worsening of diabetes in some sense or relapse on diabetes so Now, the other model of helping is a spiritual model. And this is, is the person responsible for changing their addictive behavior? No, Uh, but is the person responsible for the development of that addictive behavior? And that would be a yes. And this would be more of the spiritual models, the AA and the 12 steps. Um, And in this context, relapse is a sin or loss of contact with a higher power. So in this context, uh, it kind of goes along with the moral model, if you look at the crime, right? But instead of being a lack of willpower, it's a, lack, it, it's a disconnect with something more than who we are. And I, AA models are being more adaptive to the spiritual movement, so we can say it's being disconnected from one's higher power, not just uh, from a Christian perspective or whatnot. So. So in one, but in both of these, uh, we always need to remember that for, it will, it's always the, the individual that's committing this in this context, okay? And the next one, we have compensatory models. So this, now we're getting into more of the cognitive behavioral approaches. This is where is a person responsible for changing their addictive behavior? Yes. Is a person responsible for the development of that addictive behavior? The answer is no in this model. In this relapse is seen as a mistake and an error and a temporary setback. So it's not that the, there's something wrong with the person that they just need to be crying. It's not that it's a sin. Um, And it's not that it's a reaction to to a disease. It's that humans in a sense are valuable. We have learned histories. We have those types of things in our life that really um, interfere with, with making good decisions in this case, especially when we're talking about the cognitive aspects. And so relapse are seen as just a mistake, a mistake. It, it's not something that is defined by the person like in the moral model or the spiritual model. It is more something that happens. Everyone makes mistakes, everyone relapses, okay? Um, and anyways, okay, so I'm gonna go on from there. So these are the different kind of models of relapse prevention and as I mentioned earlier, a lot of times we use a combination of these different models, okay, because we, if you think about, you know, the psychosocial, psychosocial, biopsychosocial models, here we have the biological, right, heredity, physiology, here we have the psycho model, which is the compensatory models, but then we have the social models, which deals with morality and spirituality in those senses, so that's kind of that, biopsychosocial type of development of, of a disorder and, and the way we see relapse. All right. And um, there's always been debate uh, around these. So, you know, at one end 12 step programs or spiritual growth devoted, to, devoted towards spirituality, it really works. And then we get things like alcohol anonymous, is it a cult or a cure? There's been arguments, you know, we're trading one addiction for another. Um, And so there's always going to be uh, contradictions between these models and people and criticisms. But uh, one thing that that, that we need to recognize is when does it work and when doesn't? And that's really the important parts of relapse prevention. And what we really should be doing with clients is making the models fit for them, not trying to force the models to work, uh, to fix them because they can't Um, as as I know that many of you have seen in the addiction classes. Okay. So, as I mentioned, I, I, we what we really should be uh, focusing on is more of a biopsychosocial model that really looks at the complete person. And when we're talking biopsychosocial, we're talking, we have to take the person's biology into play, especially with addiction when you're inhaling substances that are changing the biological structures within the individual and then so the psychological part is we need to work with the behaviors and we need to work with with the thought processes that that cognitive behavioral therapy approach and then social end we have to recognize that people live within a social situation we have to recognize that uh, part of addiction might be the environment, right? That's the triggering events that we talk about a lot of times. And so biological factors include things like biological uh, vulnerabilities and genetic predispositions. We need to understand pharmacological impact of excessive use of alcohol and other drugs, as I expressed earlier with alcohol. Uh, tolerance is another issue that has to be in, addressed with the biological model and the increasing frequency of use or higher doses over time. And then the biological aspects of uh, withdrawals, such as uh, uh, the negative effects of, of ceasing addictive behaviors. It's not, a, it's not a comfortable thing to go through. And um, And we have to recognize that on this biological end for people with addiction, that this does develop the the potential of uh, the more susceptibility to other types of diseases that are more chronic and and, uh, uh, excessive use of substance. For example, uh, diabetes is pretty well associated with excessive alcohol use. Uh, Other types of disorders are are, are, uh, highly typical of other types of drug uses. Uh, and we need to recognize that those are biological factors that maintain those addictive behaviors. On the psychological end, uh, when we're using a biopsychosocial model, we wanna look at things like their motivation, Um, where are they, are they ready for change? Uh, And, and, you know, and, especially when people come in on a voluntary basis. Uh, It's it's harder to address this when people are in the forced uh, addiction recovery process, such as um, probation or they're in prison, is motivation
3: can have... Motivation can promote
5: someone to go seek help. But what we're talking about here is the actual motivation to change, meaning that a person can come to you and ask for help, and that's motivation, but you have to do a little bit more investigating to see if they're actually motivated to actually change their behavior. Um, And I I can give a quick example in that uh, when I ran a few groups, There'd be people who would come and say, I need this group, I need to be here. Um, but then to come out that they only really were motivated there to because they're resolving an argument with a spouse who thought they needed help, or uh, their employer said, hey, go get some help. Um, and And they don't usually disclose those parts. And so when we talk about motivation, we got to talk about it as two two levels. One, it's great that they came, but then two, we have to assess, are they actually willing to change? Are they really ready? And this is where the expectancies come from, the positive outcomes of drug use and self-efficacy. and 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 again, what, what we're talking about here is that expectancy is kind of like that craving, right? It's that, Oh, I can't wait to use, um, and, and and I'm good at it on that end. On the other end, we want to know: do they do they expect once they get over the the physical aspects of any positive outcomes from stopping drug use, and do they believe that they can actually stop that? So that's kind of the change we want to make in the expectancy. Uh, 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 when it comes to attribution, the effects of substance use and the reason, the effects of substance abuse and the reasons for relapse, is uh, do do we really have an understanding of that substance use, and and what drives the relapse process? What what do the clients attribute it to? And and again, this is where we have to look at the healing process, right? Because Normally, you know, in, in anything, we want to not admit to our own faults, but uh, say that these things have happened to me. And, and um, so a lot of times we attribute negative things to not the actual thing is, I guess, what I'm trying to say. And that's the other part of the psychological factors that we have to take into account when we're looking at relapse prevention. prevention. Sensation-seeking is excessive need for stimulation. Uh, we find this very common with uh, meth users, cocaine users, anyone who's using a stimulant. Um, uh, we see this sensation-seeking need, this need for constant stimulation. In a lot of cases, there are some cases where um, uh, those those types of uh, drugs are used, uh, even for sedative reasons, but not necessarily for that sensation seeking thing. Impulsivity, and these are all traits that are very common with people who are suffering with addictive problems, is the inability to effectively control or restrain uh, behavior. Um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'm going to give a mild example. Uh, well, it's not mild because it needs to stop. Uh, I don't know if there's been a day in the last six months that I haven't had a soda pop. Okay. And that it's definitely driven by impulsivity uh, is that when, when I get a craving for one, um, I impulsively go and get that uh, uh, soda um, and, and there's no thought about it. It's just an impulsive thing that is done. And again, when we get into the cognitive behavioral therapy, it's part of that Stop process, process and where we get skills. Oh, I'm going to get this. And stopping the, the thoughts and stopping the behaviors is really where we'll head with this one. Negative affect is dysphoric moods such as anxiety and depression. Again, you know, whenever you take someone off of a stimulant, they're going to have a rebound effect into depression. Whenever you take someone off a, a depressant, you're gonna have a rebound effect into a more of an anxious anxiety state. So that's going to be something that is going to need to be taken into account, especially when people are going through relapse. And then poor coping is deficit in cognitive behavioral skills or inhib- inhibitions, ability to perform behaviors due to the effects of anxiety or something else. So these are all the psychological factors we wanna take into uh, uh, um account when we're looking at relapse prevention specifically. And then we have the social cultural factor. So this is a psycho and now this is a social part of, 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 of this dynamic that we have to look at when we're looking at this prevention piece. Family history, dysfunctional family settings, especially parental alcohol and drug problems and parental abuse or neglected children, this is their present a lot of the time, but not all of the time. And that's something to keep in mind whenever you're dealing with any type of, of, of addictive or, or, or even depressive or anxiety, is that family history really does have an influence, but it's not a one size fits all. Um, I've known individuals who have come from horrible backgrounds that are addictive and they tend to be a good number of of people who are suffering from addictive process. But there is always that other population where these problems didn't necessarily develop out of family dysfunction. So it's kind of important because in, in the group setting, you'll get that dynamic. You'll get the, well, I was raised in a good family and then you'll have the person who was raised in the bad family go, well, then you don't understand anything the rest of us have gone through. And so as a facilitator, you have to watch out for that dynamic within the group setting and, and um, make sure that you, know, you intervene in a way that respects both individuals perspective and in their family history and how it contributes to addiction. And again, what that entails is bringing it back to the here and then, here and now, right? The situation, okay, this is what you're both feeling. Let's process what you're both feeling. Uh, one problem person is probably not feeling hurt. And then you go on and say, now, how does this relate? And I'm going to go back to kind of what Tina and I think it was Lauren's point was, is then what do you do to make it so, uh, you know, there's a coping skill for both both parties involved in dealing with family issues, okay? Peer influences, social pressures to engage in risk-taking behaviors, including substance use, especially when related to gang membership. I would also say that within this peer influence, gang membership is is an issue and and it's an undeniable one. But the other issue is is, is when you're dealing with uh, teenagers and adolescents who are suffering from addiction, Uh, behaviors because they really, uh, research has shown that their peers, regardless of any type of membership into gangs and stuff, has a huge influence on their behaviors. And so when we're looking at adolescence and going into young adulthood, peer influence uh, is going to be a issue that will need to be addressed within any relapse prevention type of setting. And, you know, arguably, I think that goes with any age group, but we do know that this age group is heavily influenced more by peers than even family or authority figures. Culture and ethnic backgrounds, norms and religious beliefs that govern the use of alcohol and drug and ethnicity and variation. I would also argue stereotypes and, and cultural ethnic uh, stereotypes about uh, um, For example, Native American populations, there's a stereotype that Native American populations tend to uh, be alcoholics, tend to be uh, drug users, um, those types of things. It's a stereotype that actually doesn't even, if you look at good research, doesn't pan out at all. There's no actual truth to it. Uh, There's just this perception and the stereotype, which drive some uh, Native Americans to fit that stereotype and to fit into that, that cultural expectation that this is just something that my people do or, or like. Um, I know in, in, in my own ethnic group, um, I'm, I'm part uh, uh, Irish and I'm part um, uh, uh, Russian, German. And so whenever I go somewhere, I'm expected to Drink beer, that's an expectation. Um, And no matter what I do, there will always be a glass that shows up in front of me. But that's a stereotype that that has to be confronted, uh, 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 especially in the relapse prevention setting. And so, and that brings in, you know, the peer pressure also. Um, media and advertising societal emphasis on immediate gratification and glorification of alcohol and drug use, and this is you know uh, you know you you all know this when you watch TV. I mean the good guys and the bad guys are all drinking it up, and I don't understand why um, we don't have more actors and actresses in uh, drug rehab after watching some of their movies. But I'm assuming that maybe they're not just drinking; they're drinking just mud water or something. So anyways, those are the so- social cultural aspects.
3: Okay. All right what time are we?
5: Okay, I'm going to stop here. for this one so that we can continue the conversation.
3: Um, Leanne, I, I have that same
5: impulse with food as well. so Yes, and, and that's an important perspective. Is, you know, we talk about these treatment groups as if the person who has the addiction problem is somehow unique and se- separate from everyone else. But I would be willing, even though it may not be as damaging to our body or put us all at risk, I would argue that we, everyone in this room, probably has some type of an addiction, um, mainly because it's, it's, it's kind of built into our systems and, and the way we're wired. So I think it's an important point to recognize that we all have something that we probably have an impulsion towards or, or the like. So I think that's an important point. Thank you, Leanne. All right, I'm gonna ask, does anybody have any questions from today's lecture and where we're headed?
3: Okay. No questions. All
5: right, Thanks, Lorenzo. All right. All right. No questions. Okay. Since there's sorry, since there's no questions, let's uh, let's finish up for today, and we'll continue this conversation on Monday. And then, like I said, by the end of the class, I'd like to at least hit more of the trauma-based groups, um, at least to get those covered by the end of the, the, the time. So there's no questions. Mr.
3: Peterson, I got a question. Oh, yes, yes. This is Rhonda.
5: Hi, Rhonda. I came
3: in on the latter part of the class. I'm still in my
0: orientation. Um, are we still doing our weekly reflection based off of this um, class session?
5: Yes, yes, yes. So from here on out, your weekly reflections will be based on what you learned in these lectures, and I am going to try and remember to record them. Um, so for, for okay. those who who have missed, and this one was mostly recorded. Um,
3: okay, thank you, I'll review it.
5: Okay, yeah, so. Have a good uh, day. You too, you too. Uh, yeah, so as far as finishing up the semester, really your assignments are going to be completing both weekly reflections. And that's really what I'm gonna base whether I feel like you learned the necessary things to for this class. So. so that's that's how we'll end it. All right. Thank you. You're welcome. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you. Good. Thank you.